Here it is! From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm fine, but it sounds like your audio device of choice may have a sinus infection. You may ask, where are the welfare queens of today to be found? I would suggest welfare queens are in the boardrooms. Even before the cause of the deadly camp fire is determined, lawmakers in California are drafting legislation to shield the public utility, the electric company in Northern California, PG&E, shield that company from massive liabilities connected to the blaze. You don't want the electric company to be responsible for the sparking on the lines that, quote, we want to send a signal to the financial markets Hey, guys, love us. Oh, sorry, that we are not going to leave the utilities flapping in the wind, said Kelly Smith, chief consultant for the State Assembly Utilities and Energy Committee. This is according to the Bay Area News Group. The legislation will be introduced by Democratic. That's right. Well, there aren't any Republicans in California, so the Democrats have to act like them. Democratic Assemblyman Chris Holden of L.A. County. The bill will protect California's major investor-owned utilities from wildfire liabilities. Make a few more like like nuclear power plants. No problem. We got you covered. What a happy Thanksgiving gift this is for PG&A shareholders, directors, and executives to enjoy this holiday weekend. While over 12,000 residents of Butte County spend Thanksgiving in shelters, tents, or their cars, some mourning their dead or distraught over loved ones who are missing. That's from Senator Jerry Hill, also a Democrat, a frequent critic of PG&E. See, there's no Republicans, so some of the Democrats have to act like Democrats. The idea behind the anticipated legislative fix would be to ensure that financial liabilities arising from any destructive wildfires this year don't destabilize a big utility like PG&E. Governor Brown, a couple months ago, signed a sweeping bill designed to remedy California's past, present, and future wildfire ailments, brushing aside criticism that the measure was a bailout for PG&E. See, he was a Democrat, but he had to act. Which faces a troubling mountain of liabilities, does PG&E, linked to infernos that torched the wine country and other regions a year ago from sparking on their lines. You don't want them to have to go out and... That bill created a smoother path for state regulators and PG&E to pass on costs to the company's customers with higher monthly power bills. That's called socializing the costs. The bill requires the State Public Utilities Commission to set up a stress test to determine the maximum amount the utility and its shareholders can bear without crossing into bankruptcy. At which point, God knows what would happen. Could end up like the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which isn't investor-owned. Who wants that when you can have welfare queens in the boardroom? Hello, welcome to the show.
Scooter Paradise. Drop them anywhere. Please, really. Just like everything else. I'm Harry Shearer. Santa Monica, California, of course. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. Speaking of dropping it anywhere, they got nowhere to drop the Olympics. The International Olympic Committee is facing the most serious bidding crisis in decades as cities drop out of the 2026 winter bid race en masse, leaving a field of just two candidates. The Canadian city of Calgary on Tuesday became the latest to pull the plug on its 2026 Games candidacy. More about that in a moment. Of an original list of seven cities, only Stockholm and an Italian bid remain. Both of those are struggling for local and governmental support. Two reigning bigger bid, bidders, Stockholm, pulled out of the 2022 bidding process after balking at the game's cost, and the fragile combined Italian candidacy of Milan and Cortino. The Italian bid, which at one point included Torino, before that city pulled out after a disagreement with the other two, is far from guaranteed the necessary political support amid the country's financial woes, the EU is telling him. That budget don't work. Stockholm is facing opposition from a new city government which said last month it will be against any bid that includes taxpayer funding. Well, but where are you supposed to get? The whole situation leaves the IOC, according to Reuters, struggling to understand what's gone wrong after reforms in recent years under Agenda 2020 and the new norm. Two banners that they hung. 
over the thing. Those programs were aimed at making bidding and staging the games cheaper and easier, but have failed to attract new cities, almost as if they don't believe the banners. Instead, the exodus has increased piling pressure on the IOC and the president, Thomas Bach, to stem the flow. When he was asked last month what would happen if Calgary dropped out, he said, there is no plan B. What happened to Calgary? Well, they had a, a plebiscite in mid-November, but um, that wasn't official. The city council did hammer the final nail in the coffin of the game's bid with the unanimous vote to scuttle it this week. Calgary was the host city of the 88 Winter Olympics. That worked out. But the venues from those games, majority of which are still used by recreational and high-performance athletes three decades later, were the foundation of the next bid. Calgary says the Canadian press must now come to grips with how to modernize those aging sports facilities. Without the almost $2.2 billion in provincial and federal taxpayer money tied to Calgary, Pursuing and winning a bid for 2026. The task of bringing the city's major sports facilities into this century en masse is a mammoth, expensive undertaking. Says one um, official of a group studying the Olympics. Looking at Rio and Beijing, if these cities didn't have big stadia and arenas before the Olympics, that was probably because there was no economic demand for them, which doesn't bode well for their future. After the Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one every day. Now, buried on Thanksgiving weekend, News of the war, won't you? Soft, listen to the war. We can listen to the war. Well, you probably either know or don't know, it's a binary choice, that 13 agencies of the United States government colluded in... Uh, issuing a report on Friday, Black Friday, afternoon. You know, Friday afternoon news dump, except probably the dumpiest Friday afternoon of the year. Everybody's thinking about shopping. Uh, to issue a report calling the um, climate situation pretty catastrophic, pretty dire, and for the first time putting dollar numbers. That'll get your attention dollar numbers on the damage disease food uh, crop effects property values in coastal areas the damage that uh, climate change is already imposing on the United States with much more to come in the future with uh, various scenarios ranging from controlling reducing emissions to hey let her rip a uh, couple of highlights from that report. Um, under the present course of emissions, it is, quote, it is very likely that some physical and ecological impacts will be irreversible for thousands of years, while others will be permanent, unquote. 
How how are humans supposed to tell the difference between those two? You know, a seven-year pickup is permanent. Uh, the report, written by scientists at 30, 13 federal agencies and extensively peer-reviewed, that's like science stuff, concludes the impact of global warming is outpacing previous projections. The president's response? I have a strong opinion. I want great climate. We're going to have that. We sure are. The levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the main driver of climate change, have hit a new record high, the U.N. said Thursday. Well, they were burying it on Thanksgiving. What's with this uh, contained a warning that the time to act was running out? So is everybody else. Ahead of the COP climate summit in Poland next month, Poland, top U.N. officials are again trying to raise the pressure on governments to meet the pledge of limiting warming to less than two degrees Celsius enshrined in the 2015 Paris Accord. Without rapid cuts in CO2 and other greenhouse gases, like your methane and your nitrous oxide, climate change will have increasingly destructive and irreversible impacts for life on Earth. The head of the World Meteorological Organization, Petteri Taalas, said in a statement. What does he know? The window of opportunity for action, he says, is almost closed. Well, then you got to open the door. In an open letter to all states ahead of this big conference in Poland, UN Rights Chief Michel Bachelet warned of cataclysmic consequences if the world does not reverse course. Quote, entire nations, ecosystems, peoples, and ways of life could simply cease to exist, she said, citing evidence that nations are not on track to meet the commitments made in Paris. Like, who are you looking at, lady? What? What? The lucrative truffle industry is set to disappear within a generation due to climate change, according to new research by University of Stirling, England academic. A warmer and drier climate will be responsible for the decline. It will have a huge economic, ecological, and social impact and could be accelerated by other factors such as heat wave events, forest fires, pests, and diseases. With the truffle species Tuber melanosporum, thank you, trading at more than 580 bucks a pound, the industry is worth hundreds of millions. Estimates suggested it could reach 5.7 billion over the next 20 years. The new study suggests a bleaker future for this sector. Leader of the study says, under the most likely climate change scenario, European truffle production will decline between 78 and 100 percent during the last 25 years of this century. But the decline, he says, may well occur in advance of this date when other climate change factors are taken into account, your heat waves, forest fires, pests, and disease. He continues, we risk losing an industry worth hundreds of millions to the economy. However, the socioeconomic impact of the predicted decline could be substantially larger. Truffle harvesting and related activities form a key component of local history and cultural activity. You want cultural activity? Go to the movies. A new study published in Nature Climate Change provides one of the most comprehensive assessments yet of how humanity is being impacted by the simultaneous occurrence of multiple climate hazards strengthened by increasing greenhouse gas emissions. This, according to Eureka Alert, this research reveals that society faces a much larger threat from climate change than previous studies have suggested. This analysis of thousands of peer-reviewed scientific papers Here's that science again. Reveals 467 ways in which human health, food, water, economy, infrastructure, and security have been impacted by multiple climate changes. 
including warming, drought, heat waves, wildfires, precipitation, floods, storms, sea level rise, and changes in land cover and ocean chemistry. Until now, with few exceptions, climate hazards due to greenhouse gas emissions have been studied individually. However, that may mask the impacts of other hazards resulting in incomplete assessments of the overall consequences of climate change on humanity. The systematic review of thousands of papers details 467 ways of how these hazards have already impacted human health, including death. Yeah, that impacts health. Disease and mental well-being, food supply from animals and plants on land and sea, quantity and quality of fresh water, infrastructure, including electricity, transportation, and lifeline services such as water and sewage lines, and economic losses, including property damage and reduced labor productivity, while triggering multiple cases of migrations and violence. Supporting papers are listed at impactsofclimatechange.info. We predict that by 2100, the number of hazards occurring concurrently would increase, making it even more difficult for people to cope, according to the lead author. And Nature Climate Change buried that during Thanksgiving week. And as the ant- here's a little bit of good news. Good news for um, the air, bad news for the water. As the Antarctic ice sheet melts, Look at her go. Warming of the atmosphere will be delayed by about half a, by about a decade, but sea level rise will accelerate. That's according to a new research scheduled for publication in Nature. Study is the first to project how the melting of the Antarctic ice sheet will affect future climate. Current climate models do not include the effects of melting ice on the global climate. The entire Earth will continue to warm. Ooh. But the atmosphere will warm more slowly because more of the heat will be trapped in the ocean, says the author. Warming won't be as bad as fast as we thought, but sea level rise will be worse. They got you coming and going. News of the warm copyrighted feature in this broadcast. Now, how are things going in America's longest war? Well, Afghan opium producers were hit hard by the worst drought in living memory this year. Hey, score one for climate change. And excessive supply with output and prices falling sharply as the area under poppy cultivation shrank, according to an annual survey that came out this week, quoted by Agence France Presse. In sharp contrast to a bumper 2017, pull up to 2017, the value of opium, a key source of funding for the Taliban, as it left poppy growing farms, fell 56% according to the U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime. Potential opium production from this year's harvest dropped 29% to 6,400 tons. That kind of reverses a bit. Last year's 87% increase. Cultivation shrank by 20% and yields fell. So we're winning, right? Now before you think about that too much it's time for me to read the trades for you from advertising age packing an emotional punch biometric research proves the purchase power of branded content I'll read it for you this is written by two people at Turner Broadcasting so they're, they're pitching their wares to the other advertisers, you see. Eight seconds. 
That's the average time spent on digital content these days. At a time when the biggest challenge facing marketers isn't getting their message out, it's making a real human connection. Brands need people, brands need to give people what they care about and quick. Assuming we still have your attention, we're confident you know how branded content works. Storytelling is a way for brands to connect with people through content that entertains and resonates is well documented. But what about why marketers need branded content in today's media mix? What role does quality storytelling play in moving brands down the purchase funnel? While lifting shampoo off the shelf is important, we're also thinking about how brands can form a relationship with people and earn brand love. Huge technological strides in data science and machine learning have enabled publishers and marketers to understand how content emotionally connects at scale. Within a matter of days and without spending a fortune, we can now understand how creative resonates with the subconscious of consumers. That's according to Mikhail Jatma, founder and CEO of Real Eyes. What's exciting is technology like this allows us to truly understand how branded content is emotionally connecting with consumers, says Eric Levin of Spark Foundry. It's almost impossible to measure love between two humans, and up till now, research measuring the emotional impact of branded content has also been limited. Surveys have shown how people think they feel. Our industry has lacked the emotion-based data to prove the why. Turner Ignite, that's Turner's ad innovation engine, partnered with the AI tech platform Real Eyes to measure how people feel about branded content relative to traditional 30-second ads. Using webcams, computer vision, and machine learning, Real Eyes analyzed the 90% of decision-making that happens when people don't even realize they're making choices, a space marketers need to play in to drive outcomes. Realize that analyze the second-by-second second emotional responses of 4,800 people watching branded content produced by Turner across its entertainment, news, and sports properties. And 4,200 watching more traditional ads. Things we learned. Branded content makes people happy. Viewers of branded content were 62% more likely to show a positive reaction compared with those who watched 30-second ads. And because branded content typically tells a strong story, emotional engagement actually increased by 31% during the viewing experience. Emotional response while watching traditional commercials stayed flat. Also, happy people remember your brand. Over 67% of participants thought branded content was more entertaining, more relevant, and more likely to make them think of the advertised brand at time of purchase. Happy people who remember your brand will purchase your products. Respondents who watched branded content showed a significant increase in preference toward the featured brand and rated the brand 57% more favorably than the control group. When asked about intent to purchase, those who viewed branded content were 17% more likely to say they were very likely to buy the brand being advertised. 
while this research provides a new window into how people really feel about branded content, it's important to remember that not all content is created equal. Powerful storytelling reflects what people care about deeply. And when marketers work with world-class storytellers, they too can connect and achieve lasting brand loyalty. So, before you direct your next movie, we know marketers benefit from partnering with storytellers and associating with loyal fans. Not only does this association create higher engagement, but it develops brand love. We now have reasonable biometric data to put hard numbers behind the emotional impact of branded content and how those feelings translate to lasting connections and real sales results. With the right content partner, it may be easier than you think to outpace digital attention and earn brand love. Here we brand cows, why not content? random thought that occurs to me when I read the trades for you.
Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Cody Outscoop. This is this week's edition of Said and Done. Said and Done is CPR's weekly podcast about the arts and the artsy. And there's no artsier place than right here at CPR's Central Pod for today's show. A couple of topics, a couple of guests. Should all add up to a couple of hours of good listening. (laughs) Not really. So let's get to it. We all love movies based on cartoon characters from the comics or wherever, right? So, scoop from out scoop, there's a new cartoon character about to make his big screen debut. And said and done host emeritus, and I don't even know what that means, (laughs) Ira Zipkin has our story. Thanks, Cody. It means I don't have to read the intros anymore. Word. Movie makers are always looking for iconic characters to build what they call franchises, films that can generate multiple sequels, with hopefully ever-increasing box office. Well, it turns out that one cartoon icon has been hiding in plain sight for half a century, specifically in or near our forests. And our guest today has found him. Jason Mason is head of production at Recognizable Features. Jason, who's pitching your new tent poles, as movie folks might say? Ira, if I say only you can prevent forest fires, what do you think of? Initially, I think of forest fires. And then you think of a certain bear? Smokey. Right. Mm. Strikes me as I think of it as a rather ironic name for a firefighting bear. Ira, here's the point. Smokey has been a familiar part of American folklore for freaking ever. Mm -hmm. Now he's about to star in his first full-length adventure comedy drama, or as we call it, an adco mama. Well, it's exciting for what I guess you think are... Millions of Smokey fans? Well, listen, we followed this creature through a lot of evolution in his charisma. You know, when he started out, he was Smokey the Bear. Right, with the hat and uh, and the thing. The the. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been big and husky. Then for a while, he turned cuddly, which uh, you know, I personally think was like big-time creative F-up. And most recently, he's become who I think he always wanted to be. Smokey Bear. No, the. He's not the bear. The. A lot of bears around in the <laughs> cartoon zeitgeist, what I call a cargeist. Matter of fact, it was the, the, the Paddington Bear thing that started my brainstorm thinking. You know, he's not even an American bear. I don't even think they have bears in Britain. Ah, they got voles and moles and badgers. <laughs> they wish they had bears. So I'm thinking the market is more than ready for an all-American bear. And not those wussy care bears, you know, a real he bear. <laughs> you know, we're desperate for heroes these days. We are. I thought the theaters were... An uncomplicated hero. He's against fire. End of story. Not really, because, of course, he has a journey to undertake. He wasn't always against fire? Interesting you'd ask that. <laughs> well, it was in the press. How do you think he got the name Smokey, anyway? Mm. He liked camels? He was born and grew up Roger Bear. I'm not giving the whole story away, Mm -hmm. but like many firefighters, he had a secret weakness. He liked setting fires. Mm. One day, and you can figure out the rest, and ever since the girl bear rescued him, he's been Smokey. Americans love redemption stories. Smokey's got a great one. Okay, well, I think we're all clear on the concept. Uh, Not really. It's a creative mixture of live action and animation, so you never know. No, you never really do. And uh, casting-wise... The girlfriend bear is up for grabs. And I don't mean that in any Me Too kind of way. Mm -hmm. Smokey, we're talking right now with uh, Snoop Dogg's people. 
So an urban there, that's sort of a leap. Hey, if he can go from murder suspect to lovable game show host, semi-animated bear should be a cinch. A dog playing a bear. (laughs) Now you're thinking like a producer. Oh, that's so nice. And finally, I assume the project has a name? Working title. Smokey's most famous two words are... Forest fires. Only you. Mm-hmm. That's what he's always emphasizing. Mm-hmm. Only you. He points to the camera. He says it slowly. It's sure. like his hook. Sure. So, it's only natural the film is called Smokey Bear, Only Me. Jason Mason, when can we see Smokey's big screen debut? I, I'd like to say by next Christmas. So I'm saying it. Thanks, Jason. Cody? Awesome, Emeritus dude. Facebook is after them. YouTube is after them. The intelligence world is after them. Who's they? Well, hey, they're bad actors, and our guest here in Central Pod thinks that's demonizing a hardworking bunch of people. He's Keith Steele, national president of the Bad Actors Guild. So what's up, Keith? You're right, Cody. Facebook says they're targeting bad actors all over the world. Uh, Just to take one example, of course, Instagram, WhatsApp... YouTube, as you said. Now, that's putting a target on the backs of thousands of hardworking Americans. How do you think that makes them feel? Well, I would say like sales associates in a big box store, but I'm guessing that's bogus. Sub-premium thespians form a major part of our entertainment ecosystem for a very good reason. There just aren't enough premium quality performers to fill the available jobs. Take me, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm Sammy the Unhappy Mattress Salesman in TV spots in Phoenix and Scottsdale. You're unhappy because you're not in L.A.? Sammy's unhappy because not enough people know I'll undersell anybody. Oh, that's good. But not great. Mm -hmm. And that's the point. The fine mattress people in Arizona don't have the budget for great. And it's folks like me, our thousands of members in the Bad Actors Guild, who make those wheels of commerce turn, not to mention summer theater. No, I'm cool with that. Mm. But maybe, Keith, you're, like, taking all these comments literally. Maybe they're just using bad actors as a figure of speech, like a half a metaphor, you know, a semaphore. You don't hear them saying they're going after bad accountants or bad plumbers, do you? They have stronger unions? I just think actors make a convenient whipping boy. Maybe so, but what is that? Oh, right. So you're saying to the Facebooks and WhatsApps of the world... We bad actors are strong. We are united. Hashtag bad actors are good. Were you reading that? It's just the way I talk. Keith Steele, peace vibes to you. Thanks. Well, clock is a bitch. We gotta shuffle Next time, more about the arts and the artsy here on Said and Done. Made possible today by a grant from the Flannery Foundation. Flannery will get you everywhere. This is CPR, public radio for the rest of us. This is the show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. Kokomo High School in Kokomo, Indiana, coincidentally enough, issued an apology on social media this week after a group of students attending the rival game between Kokomo and Western Howard High Schools displayed unsportsmanlike conduct in the stands in the form of a sign. The vulgar language was spelled out by a group of kids in the student section of the stands. It caught the attention of uh, a graduate who was in the stands. 
It didn't take long for the officials and the sheriffs to be heading over there in that direction, he said, and having that down quickly. Kokomo schools issued an apology for what happened. We're sincerely sorry for the actions of our student section this evening. This does not reflect the sportsmanship of Kokomo High School. Memory of that sign will hopefully fade quickly, and the students who thought it was a good idea will re-examine that thought process. That's spoken like an educator. A team of elite Canadian curlers. You heard what I said. Including a 2014 Olympic champion who's thrown out of a world curling tournament last week for unsportsmanlike behavior after a drunken, belligerent, and disruptive display. It's like a hockey game broke out at curling. I guess they were here to party, said the manager of the Red Deer Curling Center, host of the Alberta Bonspiel. And they went out to curl, and it went sideways. There was swearing and disturbing other teams on the ice during the curling classic. Then there were smashed brooms by one of the curlers. They've since apologized and offered to pay for a hole in the locker room wall. Don't mess with curlers when they're drunk. Justin Vogel says he doesn't think the Thanksgiving-themed advertisement for his Colorado pizza shop is racist, but he understands the controversy. It's definitely not correct, he told the Denver Post of his sign. It's basically making light of genocide. It's coarse and inappropriate. The ad was for Wright Coast Pizza. He owns it in Greeley. It's a picture of a pilgrim saying, Sorry about all the smallpox. How about a slice of pepperoni? As she hands a pizza to a Native American wearing a traditional headdress. It is, of course, estimated about 90% of Native Americans died from exposure to diseases like smallpox that pilgrims brought over. There's evidence European colonizers purposely gave Native Americans some blankets contaminated with smallpox in an attempt to kill them through what we now call biological warfare. The controversial ad was published in Bandwagon Magazine, an arts and entertainment publication in northern Colorado. The Latino Foundation of the area called it a very public racist ad. The uh, publisher of the magazine said, We extend our apologies to everyone who's seen this insensitive and ignorant ad. The magazine assured its readers, Your voices are valid. Both the magazine and our clients regret ever printing the advertisement. And on Right Coast Pizza's Facebook page, the company wrote that we try to keep our ads edgy and by no means did we intend to offend anyone. We're taking steps to remove any copies that we can. We hope you'll understand that this was an honest mistake and we're truly sorry to the Native American community and anyone else that may have offended. Been offended. Felt offended. Fox News has issued an apology to its viewers and Hillary Clinton after a guest on the channel compared the former Secretary of State to herpes during a Thanksgiving Day broadcast. They buried it on Thanksgiving. Turning Point USA's director of Spanish engagement, Ana Paulina, made an appearance to discuss Clinton's email scandal. Still, again, with political analyst Doug Schoen. After the host, Rick Leventhal, mentioned Clinton's consistent appearance in the media, Paulina said she won't go away. She's like herpes. Leventhal quickly ended her appearance, visibly taken back, taken aback by her comment. Okay, that is news that we're breaking here. Not appropriate, he said. She was taken off the screen as the segment continued on without her. Leventhal later made an apology to viewers over the language used. We're going to wrap this segment a little bit early because of the language that was used in the segment, and we apologize to our viewers for that. Fox News anchor Arthel Neville 
Uh-huh. Also apologized for the incident. Quote, we're all Americans, and that is the focus. We want to reiterate we do not condone the language that Anna Paulina just displayed here, and we apologize to Secretary Clinton for that. Unquote. Arthel Neville on Fox News. Boston Celtics point guard Kyrie Irving has addressed the profanity he used in his recent remarks about Thanksgiving. Quote, I spoke with frustration after last night's game and spoke words that shouldn't be in a professional setting no matter what, he tweeted Thanksgiving morning. Meant no disrespect to the holiday and those who celebrate it respectfully. I'm grateful for the time we all can share from our families. We are always one. Upon being wished a happy Thanksgiving following the Celtics-Knicks game Wednesday night, he said, F Thanksgiving, F that F. No, F that S. Guess they lost to the Knicks. Uh, No, his distaste for Thanksgiving stems from his Native American heritage, which he recently reconnected with. After being welcomed into his late mother's Standing Rock Sioux tribe in August, he donned an eagle feather gifted from his tribe in his hair for Boston's season opener against the 76ers. I guess uh, to, to President Trump, he would be Mr. Pocahontas. Dateline Lisbon, Ohio, the Columbiana County Republican Party chairman has apologized after coming under criticism from Democrats for a Facebook post saying the California wildfires were, quote, God's punishment to liberal California. To err is human. I confess to erring in my recent post regarding the tragic wildfires in California. My intent was not to show any disrespect to the innocent lives that have been lost to these fires, but rather to point out the policies that have largely contributed to the fires, said David Johnson in a statement issued after the firestorm that resulted. Look, it was an inartful expression, and for that, I regret it sincerely. I certainly didn't intend to offend or hurt the feelings of anybody whose lives have been affected by this, and if I did that, I am certainly sorry, he told a local TV station. James Cordier is a head fund manager, or has been, who reportedly managed about $150 million for nearly 300 clients. He also wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Complete Guide to Option Selling. Now he's uploaded a video to YouTube in which he apologized for losing everybody's money. Where'd the, where'd the money go? Sitting in a brown chair against a black backdrop with his hands folded together, showing off his cufflinks and his apparently expensive Rolex. Cordier emotionally said he was sorry. Needless to say, the events of the past week have been incredibly devastating for our clients, he said, who had a tough time keeping his composure when discussing the people who put their financial trust in him. So many of you chose to entrust in us the ability to navigate in the world of investing. I always talked about steering your investment like a boat. I remember so many times saying that if you're steering the wheel and you're making small turns, that's good. If you're making large turns, that's probably not what you want to see, unquote. He made a big turn. He explained volatility in oil and natural gas markets created a rogue wave I was unable to navigate and that this rogue wave capsized our boat, unquote. He um, apologized to one couple in Michigan because he never got to go bass fishing with him, expressed regret to another client because it looked like a trip to the French Riviera would probably be postponed, and said he was sorry to an Australian couple because he would likely not be watching any Gold Coast sunsets with them in the near future. Hedge funds are supposed to hedge against the big waves, I thought. But that's just me. 
The Italian luxury brand Dolce & Gabbana apologized this week for racist-tinged insults that touched off a growing boycott in China, uh-oh, and left the company struggling to return its products to sh- store shelves and e-commerce sites. It's unclear whether the contrition will be enough to stem the punishment and backlash. Some uh, stores were temporarily shut. Chinese students in Italy held a small protest in front of the flagship store in Milan. What happened? Well, they staged a big fashion show. And um, it was uh, featuring 100 models, 1,500 uh, guests, and it featured a Puerile video, according to the Washington Post, featuring a Chinese model struggling to eat spaghetti and a large pastry with chopsticks. After it was widely criticized in China as insulting, and a well-known fashion blogger leaked an Instagram conversation with Gamana in which the designer fumed about the criticism, referred to China using several poo emoji, and then blurted out, China ignorant, dirty, smelling mafia, unquote. Gamana later claimed he was hacked. Models, staff, and celebrity guests bailed hours before the fashion show. Numerous e-commerce sites removed the brand's products. So, uh, they have apologized as uh, Dolce & Gabbana, although not for being hacked. Odd, that. Sarah Michelle Geller used a sexy photo shoot to post about overeating during Thanksgiving. She shared from fo- some photos from a professional shoot in which she was scantily clad to make a joke out of, about her love of holiday indulging. That didn't go over well with folks who expressed their disappointment in the comments. Some even accused the actress of fat shaming. She said, quote, I love Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, my eyes are often bigger than my stomach and I tend to eat so much I make myself sick. This was a joking reminder to myself not to do that. She apologized for the misunderstanding. I'm terribly sorry people were offended by my attempt at humor. Anyone knows me knows I would never intentionally shame anyone on any basis. I am a champion of all people. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for the support. Dayline Louisville, the St. Matthews, Texas Roadhouse, where a Louisville mother was told to cover up while she was breastfeeding, has issued an apology after meeting with nursing mothers this week. That doesn't happen often. The man who shouted, Heil Hitler, Heil Trump, at a Baltimore performance of Fiddler on the Roof, apologized this week for his outburst, saying he chose the wrong words when he was attempting to compare President Trump to the Nazi leader. President Trump took it personally. As far as I'm concerned, I like to take everything personally because you do better that way. And the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Birmingham, that would be Birmingham, not Birmingham, Birmingham, England, has apologized to survivors of abuse in the diocese at an independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Britain's having one now. Australia had one. When's ours? Archbishop Longley appeared before the inquiry this week on the final day of a three-day hearing, focusing on the allegations by the church in Birmingham. During the past three decades, he told the inquiry, I apologize to those survivors and victims of abuse for what they've suffered within the archdiocese over the years. I apologize to them. I would certainly wish to seek some way of lifting the burden. I know that apologies may feel as if they've come too late and are inadequate. I accept that, but I am sorry. He acknowledged there was still room for a lot of improvement in the diocese, but he said he'd learned from meetings in which survivors told him of the trauma they had experienced. Trauma? I had no... The uh, inquiry 
focused on the response by the diocese of, uh, to allegations of abuse by four priests, including the now-dead father John Tolkien, the son of the author. The hearing was told that the church knew that Tolkien posed a risk to children after a note was made in 1968 of an allegation that he had told Boy Scouts to strip naked. Yet he was allowed to continue to work as a priest in Birmingham for decades. One survivor told the inquiry he'd been told to pray with his trousers down by Tolkien and afterwards was told by the priest to keep what happened a secret. He repeatedly and consistently denied the allegations against him. He now dead. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, quickly, some one item of news of the atom. Toshiba, the troubled Japanese electrical and electronics conglomerate, former owner of the bankrupt Westinghouse, see, it, companies can go bankrupt, decided last week to cancel its nuclear project in the U.K. If completed, this station would have provided about 7% of Britain's electricity needs. The announcement wasn't really a surprise, according to oilprice.com. Toshiba's announcement followed word of a breakdown in negotiations with a prospective buyer, Korea Electric Power. The Koreans are rethinking their commitment to nuclear energy worldwide. Toshiba may well have had trouble financing the project uh, at this magnitude, especially given the stress on its finances from its troubled venture into American nuclear construction down Carolina way. This was going to cost $512 million. Toshiba denounced its decision as, quote, economically rational. The uh, government spokesman said, all proposed nuclear projects in the U.K. are led by private sector developers. This is entirely a commercial decision for Toshiba. Oil Price points out the only nuclear, nuclear construction project currently underway in the U.K. is owned by French and Chinese utilities, entities, that are controlled by their state governments. And it's financed with liberal debt guarantees provided by the U.K. government. Welfare queens in the boardroom, one more time. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a couple personal things. You've seen the digital billboards, the helicopters, the skywriters, the uh, endless, endless coverage. So you know by now this is the last show of, of this year, which is the 35th year of this show's existence next year, next week. 35th anniversary of the show, starting year 36. And um, as I think I mentioned, I'm going to try to look back at some of the stuff on this show during those years, at least one of the next few weeks in December. Uh, so it isn't all year in rebuke, Trump, 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 Trump. So uh, listen for that. And I want to say uh, a couple of things about Ricky Jay. Uh, a friend, a master magician. I had the opportunity to see him in a lot of different situations, most especially at this uh, Hollywood institution called the Magic Castle, where you sit in uh, heavily, steeply raked rows as an audience. So everybody's got a really close-up look at people performing close-up magic. And Ricky was, I think... Everybody uh, must acknowledge the uh, the master of close-up magic. You know, there are two kinds of magic. There's the magic where, you know, things move around a lot and a lot, of, a lot of stuff happens on stage and then something appears or disappears. And then there's close-up magic where you're just watching a guy or gal with their hands 
doing amazing things. And the latter was what Ricky was master at, as well as brilliant, brilliant showman, brilliant interlocutor and raconteur, student, amazing student of, of the world of magic. Also saw him uh, at McCabe's, a guitar shop in Santa Monica where he made things appear out of the holes in guitars that were hanging on the wall in clear view of the audience throughout the show. And I saw one of his uh, stage appearances more recently. Um, sh- shocking that we've lost him so soon. But if you uh, want to have some fun today, go to YouTube and look up some clips of the great Ricky Jay. gentlemen that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show the program returns next week at the same time on these radio stations and um, sometime next week when you check in on the audio device of your choice and it'd be just like taking everything personally because it works out that way if you'd agree to join with me then would you already thank you very much uh-huh a tip of the show chapeau to the san diego pittsburgh chicago and exile no more and hawaii desks Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this thing, still still in some use, kind of, kind of a moldering there. But the playlist of the music heard here on, sturdy as ever, resilient, and uh, your chance to get to Cars I Talk t-shirts. You know, there's a big holiday coming. There's always a big holiday coming. There's always a good time for Cars I Talk t-shirts. All of that at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at harryshearer. For the holiday season, if you hate it, the antidote to Christmas, Christmas Without Tears, Judith Owens and my yearly escape from the holidays, from the BS outside for a nice few hours, coming to London December 3rd at the Mayfair Hotel. Later in December, 
at uh, Space in Evanston, Illinois. And then uh, back home in New Orleans for two shows at the Le Petit Theater. It's always for a good cause and always with great local talent. Hope to see you there. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.